Well, we are finishing up uh, tonight a four-part series um, looking at the life of Samson. So we've been in Judges 13 to 16, and tonight we finish up um, the life of Samson, the final of the judges that's listed uh, in the book of Judges. If you've missed any of the, the series along the way and want to catch up or listen to any of the previous ones, feel free to, to go to our website and you can, um, you can find the recordings of each of the sermons on there. Well, as Americans, we love happily ever after movies. Don't we? we love to give our kids movies where, where problems arise and difficulties come, and it's normally involving a Prince Charming and his beautiful princess, right? And something happens that's a conflict, but we know what's going to happen at the end. It's all going to work out, and they're going to live happily ever after. This isn't a new thing. Snow White, 1937. They live happily ever after. No matter how old or young we are, we had childhood movies like this. Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty in the 1950s. The same idea, the difficulty comes, but we all live happily ever after. Some of the movies that I grew up on when I was younger, um, The Little Mermaid or Beauty and the Beast, this idea that, that life is just happily ever after and everything always works out best at the end. Well, I don't need to tell you, as most of you have come to realize, that that's not always true. In fact, lots of times that's not true. Right? Not every life has a happy ending. Oftentimes, lives have tragic endings. And oftentimes, the Bible isn't a happily ever after story as it's filled with it, but it's filled with tragedy. Sometimes today, we use the word tragedy just to refer to large natural disasters or other disasters. But tragedy in, in literature is where a main character is brought to ruin by a tragic flaw or moral weakness in their life. And I think that per- perfectly encapsulates the life of Samson. His life is ultimately not a happily ever after, but ultimately one of tragedy. And when we think of Samson's life, we shouldn't think of a Disney happily ever after movie. We should think of one of Shakespeare's tragedies like Macbeth or Hamlet, where it doesn't end in joy and happily ever after, but it ends with sorrow, but deep reflection on what we can learn from it. See, Samson's life is a tragic story with a tragic ending. And tonight we're going to look at this tragic ending and we're going to look at lessons that we can learn from how Samson ended his life that can cause us to take warning so our life doesn't become a tragic ending as well. Well, Judges chapter 16, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open there. Some of the text will be in the handout you received tonight. Unfortunately, there's too many verses that we couldn't print the whole thing, so we'll be reading um, more than just what's on the text. So, so if you have your Bibles or your phones, I'd encourage you to follow along with us as we go through Judges chapter 16 tonight. Judges chapter 16, verses 1 to 3 says this, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. 
We have this small little episode um, that starts us back up in chapter 16. Chapters 14 and 15 largely revolved around a Philistine woman that we don't know her name, but she was from the region of Timnah, and Samson's betrothal to her, that got broken off, and then his revenge on the Philistines. Chapter 16 starts a new episode where we see Samson going to Gaza. Gaza is not a bordering area between Israel and the Philistine area. Gaza's in the heart of the Philistine area. Gaza's downtown Philistine area, right? He, he's not on the outskirts anymore. He's gone deeper into Philistine territory. And we see here again that, that he's sinning by the type of woman that he's spending his time with. Word gets out to the Philistines who obviously hate him. He just killed over a thousand of their men with a donkey's jawbone, right? They want him dead. So they come into the city and they say, hey, rather than, rather than go into his house tonight where he's saying, let's wait at the gate, and then in the morning when he tries to leave, we'll get him. And so it was a walled city, so there was one entrance in and out. And so how the gates were set up is normally there would be some sort of a hallway with kind of sleeping quarters next to it. So you can imagine a hallway maybe 10 to 20 feet wide with on either side about three or four open sleeping quarters where there would be beds where the soldiers would lay guard. So even when they were off guard, they were manning the city gates. That's where these guards started sleeping for the night. But Samson awakes at midnight, and he senses a plot against him, and he goes to the gates, and the guards are miraculously sleeping. There's a sense of irony here in chapter 16 that the Philistines find themselves sleeping, and later in the chapter, we're going to find someone else gets in trouble because he's sleeping a little too much. So the Philistines are sleeping, and rather than just like kick open the door, rather than just like leave a little note like, ha ha, got you again. Samson decides, hey, this will be fun. And so he picks up these massive gates, the bar and all, must have weighed hundreds and thousands of pounds, puts it on his shoulder, and he walks it to the hill of Hebron. Now, we don't appreciate that. He walks it uphill 20 miles, and he drops it off. And he says, how about that, Philistines? What are you going to do about that? See, the story here is to highlight and to bring up for us again a few things. First, we see in chapter 16 the same Samson as we've seen before in chapter 14 and 15. He finds himself chasing foreign women in the heart of Philistine country. With this event, he's continued to escalate tension with the Philistines as we've seen that God actually has in mind that the Israelites and the Philistines live in tension. Not only that, but it introduces us to the city of Gaza where Samson's life will come full circle by the end of chapter 16. Well, verse 4 moves us on to another episode. It says this, After this, he loved another woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Now, Samson is now in the valley of Sorek. That's also, as you might have guessed, in Philistine territory. And as the author of Judges has done in, this, in these several chapters, it's down in the valley, and Samson lives up in the high country, and rather than stay in the high country, he goes down to the valley. Once again, going down, representing the spiritual condition of his life, continuing just to keep plodding downhill, as we've seen the whole time. And so he goes down to this woman, and for the first time we see a woman's name in, this, in these chapters. Her name is Delilah. Verse 5. The Lord of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you a thousand one hundred pieces 
of silver. Now, with the woman at Timnah, they threatened her with her family's life. They said, if you don't tell us Samson's riddle, we're going to kill you and all your family. And there was an irony in that she did it to get her out, but she ended up getting killed by them anyways, the next, cha- the next chapter. But here, rather than try and threaten Delilah, they come with good old-fashioned bribe. Right, a good old-fashioned bribe. And we see here these five lords, most likely five lords, come up from the Philistine territory and they're going to offer her 1,100 shekels of silver apiece. So she's getting 5,500 shekels. This is an extraordinarily large amount of money. A few chapters ago in Judges chapter 8, when Gideon beat and conquered the Midianites, all the money they took from the Midianites, and says in Judges 8.26, was 1,700 shekels. In the book of Genesis, Abraham buys a field for an extravagantly high-priced property of 400. She's getting 5,500 shekels. They hate Samson. They want to get rid of him. So verse 6. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that no one could subdue you. And we now have a series of episodes that repeat themselves and have lots of similarities as we see four things kind of cycle through in four different episodes. Verse seven, Samson said to her, if they bind me, with seven fresh bowstrings that have never been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the Lord of the Philistines brought up her seven fresh bowstrings that, that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. Now this first thing that Samson gives sounds ridiculous. So he says, tie me with seven bowstrings. He's not talking about like a bow and arrow. What he literally means is tie me with seven fresh tendons cut from an animal. Seven fresh tendons cut from animal. Now there's an irony in what Samson says, because if you've been with us, you remember that Samson is a Nazarite. And as a Nazarite from birth, his Nazarite vow says that he cannot drink or eat anything from the vine, so no grapes or wine. He cannot touch or have touched to him any dead or unclean animal. And the third was he cannot cut his hair. By doing this, he's playing again with his Nazarite vows. He's done throughout. He's saying, hey, take something that's freshly dead and cover me with it. He's actually breaking his Nazarite vow in this, um, in this play on her with Delilah. And so she comes and she binds him with these seven fresh tendons and she plays this game, right? The Philistines are here and they actually are there, right? But she, the Philistines are here and it, it literally, it's nothing, right? He just wakes up and it's like with no effort at all, he's ripped them apart. Verse 10, then Delilah said to Samson, behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arm like a thread. So the second cycle through, he suggests new ropes, which we have the insight, if you were here last week and remember from chapter 15, that when he was taken captive by the Israelites to be handed over to the Philistines, they bound him with two new 
ropes. And we saw that when Samson saw the Philistines, he ripped them apart like it was nothing. We have this little insight because we know what just happened. The Philistines don't know what he was bound with. We know he's messing with her. Right? He's messing with her again. He's just playing around here. Oh yeah, some new ropes, that'll do it. And so she ties him with these new ropes, never been used, yells us out again, and he snaps them off again like nothing at all has happened. Verse 13. The third cycle. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin, and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. So this next episode, again, is quite absurd. He's saying, listen, I have long flowing hair. I've been Nazarite. If, if you take this and you wind it in, think of something like a sewing machine or some sort of way that you would make fabric. If you kind of wind and weave it through with seven different strands, then I, I'm as weak as any other man who's ever lived. She goes, okay. And so he falls asleep and she does this to him, calls out, boom, pulls it out, nothing. It's all exactly the same. The third episode. But notice that Samson's starting to edge dangerously close to something. Because he's now hinted where he thinks his power lies in his hair. He's moving further away from God. He's moving closer towards making a big mistake. Verse 15. And she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. Now, sometimes if, if you've been raised in church or you've heard this story before, sometimes we think like that this is like every 20 minutes, the Samson and Delilah have like this new thing, right? Where it's like she cuts up these tensions, binds him, it doesn't work. 20 minutes later, he falls back asleep and she's on with the ropes. 20 minutes later, it's this. We see here that this is a, month, a long process, weeks, months possibly, we don't know how long, but it's day after day after day that she's saying, you don't really love me or you would tell me all your secrets. You don't really love me unless you would tell me how this works. You don't really love me unless this, if this reminds you of exactly the same thing that his first wife in chapter 14 said to him, you don't really love me unless you tell me the answer to the riddle. It reminds us exactly of that. So she pressed him hard day after day. It says his soul was vexed to death. Verse 17, and he told her all his heart. Literally, the translation is he bears his soul to her. There's a play on words here, whereas in verse 15, she said, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? And in verse 17, he shows her his heart. He's saying this, this is finally it. This is the real thing. He bears his soul to her. He says this, verse 17. He said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. 
See, this is shocking for, for a few reasons. First, that he admits the truth when he clearly should see what's going on. That he admits to her what's, what the truth is. But not only that, it's shocking because all along, a lot of Samson's life, you've kind of wondered, does he know who he is? Like he's so selfish, so self-centered, does his own thing, is always touching dead things, is always drinking wine. Like, does he know who he is? Yes. Yes, he does. He has a perfect self-awareness. I am a Nazarite set from birth to do this. He totally understands and he lives in constant conscious rebellion against what God has placed upon his life. At the end of, in Numbers chapter 6, excuse me, when it talks about someone who were to take a Nazarite vow, which was normally a temporary thing, they finished it, they would offer sacrifices, and the final act that they would do of the Nazarite vow would be to cut their hair and actually offer that as a sacrifice to God. And so the hair was seen as especially significant oftentimes in the Nazarite vow. Perhaps also Samson thinks, hey, it's the only thing I haven't broken yet. So it must be one out of three, right? The other two, it's not that because I've broken that my whole life and I still have all this power. The next verse, verse 18. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the Lord of the Philistines saying, come up again for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands and made him sleep. She made him sleep on her knee, so she, he falls asleep on her lap. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. So his hair's gone, and she torments him. Notice this, the chapter started with the guards sleeping, and it costing them a lot. Now Samson's lulled into a deep sleep, and it costs him a lot. Verse 20. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as the other times and shake myself free. And one of the most tragic verses in the whole book, maybe the whole Bible. And he did not know that the Lord had left him. He didn't realize that his true power, which was not in his hair or in his strength, but his true power, which was in God, he did not realize that it was gone. Well, the first lesson that we can learn from this tragic ending, the first lesson is this. If you play with fire, you're going to get burned. If you play with fire, you're going to get burned. See, Samson had every opportunity to walk away. It was almost an exact repeat of a cycle of his life before, where the, the impulse of a Philistine woman cost him dearly. It's almost exactly the same thing. Not only that, but it's not once, it's not twice, it's not third, but it's on the fourth time that he gives it up. He's been playing with fire all along. And if we play with fire, you're going to get burned. What I mean by this, if you play with a sin in your life, it's going to cost you. If you mess around with sin in your life, it's going to cost us. See, sin is not to be messed with. And Samson was playing around in sin. He was acting like it didn't have any effect on him or the people around him and that it wouldn't cost him anything. But sin always costs us. 
I saw a video um, a few weeks ago that I thought so well encapsulated how our attitude towards sin should be. This is security camera footage. Um, and if you didn't notice, it's hard to tell. I don't know what country this is. This is a foreign country. But the guy on the right pulls up at a gas station and is smoking a cigarette. Probably not the best decision. And he's clearly having a conversation with someone who works there. And he's probably told to put a cigarette out. The guy says no. So the guy who works there decides to do something about it. <laughs> If you don't put the cigarette out, I'll put the cigarette out. Right? He's like, hey, listen, you don't smoke cigarettes next to gas tanks. Why? Because something bad could very easily happen. I saw that and I was like, isn't that a great metaphor for what we look like when we dabble around and mess with sin in our lives and think there's not going to be any consequences to it? See, the reality is God can forgive every sin in our lives. And if we've believed and placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he has paid on the cross for every sin in our lives that we have and ever will commit. It's an amazing thing that God's grace is. But just because Jesus has paid for our sin doesn't mean that when we continue to mess with sin that it's not going to cause us great consequences in our lives. See, Samson walked with God for some amount of time. One of the greatest ironies and difficulties of Samson's life is that in the Bible, he's found in Hebrews 11, these great heroes of the faith. Samson's there. And I'm like, how? How is Sam? What what is redeemable about Samson's life? Because we just see so many bad things happen over and over again. God can forgive and he can use each and every one of us. But sin always has consequences. Sin always has consequences. So many times, our attitudes aren't like this towards the sin. When we sin, we need to put out the sin. We need to see sin and do whatever we can to stop sinning with the help of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so I just want to encourage you tonight. If you're messing around in sin, stop. Stop. Learn from Samson's life. It will cost you. There's always consequences to sin. And if you're living in known sin, I beg you tonight to stop. It's not worth it. It will cost you. Samson figured this out in his own life. Verse 21. The Philistines sieged him. And gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza, where we started chapter 16, and bound him with bronze shekels. And he ground at the mill in the prison. In chapter 14, we find a man driven by his sight. It said everything that Samson did was pleasing in his own sight. He found his wife because she was good in his eyes. He was driven by his sight. And at the end of his life, Samson finds himself with no sight. He finds himself without his eyes walking around grinding the mill at the prison. Something that was so low it normally wasn't a slave who did it. It was often an animal. A donkey or a mule was to do that low. But they thought, what's the most demeaning thing that we can make anyone do? And so that's where they put Samson. The reversal of Samson's calling versus what happened in his life is stunning. 
It's absolutely stunning. I was reading a commentary this week, and I'm, I'm going to read a longer quote, but I thought it summarized what we see in these three verses so well. It says this, Overnight, this man is transformed from one whose life is governed by sight and whose actions are determined by what is right in his own eyes into a blind man with eyes gouged out. Overnight, a life of coming and going as he pleases turns into a life of bondage and imprisonment. Overnight, the person who had spent his life insulting and humiliating others becomes the object of their humiliation. Overnight, a man with the highest conceivable calling, the divinely commissioned agent for deliverance of Israel, is cast down to the lowest position imaginable, grinding flour for others in prison. In the end, his vitality is drained away. He is left without strength, without sight, without freedom, without dignity, and without God. It's where Samson finds himself at this point in his life. Well, as we've worked through the life of Samson, I've pointed out for us each week how Samson's life is a reflection of where Israel finds itself in their walk with God. And we see this kind of come to a conclusion tonight as Samson finds himself in bondage. So we've talked about how, like Samson, Israel was miraculously born, how they were called to be separate and devoted to God, how they chased after foreign women and Israel chased after foreign gods, how they both did what was right in their own eyes, They were rash and immature. But tonight we see that like Samson, Israel experienced bondage and oppression by their enemy. They both experienced bondage and oppression by their enemy. This is the story of Judges, and unfortunately it doesn't end in Judges. And this was a warning to the people of Israel as they were entering into the promised land. As Moses gave them a reaffirmation of God's law in Deuteronomy chapter 28, he says this, But because you did not serve the Lord your God, with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things. Therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you, in hunger and in thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. When they walked away from God, God promised you will, be, you will serve your enemies and be given over to oppression. And that's where Israel finds themselves at this point in Samson's life. Not only that, but Israel finds themselves, just like Samson, blind. They find themselves blinded to God and God's work in their lives. A few chapters later, just several years later, historically, after the life of Samson into the book of 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we read this. It says this, Now the boy Samuel, the prophet who was just a young child still, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. There was no sight of God. Not only that, but at that time, Eli, the priest, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. Israel find itself no vision from God, and it's a replicant of that. Their high priest himself is physically blind, showing how hard and how cold their hearts have walked away from God. And like Samson, ultimately, Israel needed to be humbled. Like Samson, Israel needed to be humble. Again, talking of the the warnings of if they walk away from God, God warns them that they will be humbled if they don't follow after him. Leviticus 26, verses 18 and 19 says this, And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power. 
See, not just Samson needed humility, not just Israel needed humility, but all of us need to recognize from Samson's life, the second lesson we can learn from his tragic ending is this. Humility is always the road back to God. Humility is always the road back to God. And if you don't choose humility in your life, God will ultimately humble you. Right? When it comes to humility, we either have a choice where we can humble ourselves now or through circumstances of life, God will bring us to humility. And Samson didn't lower himself, and so ultimately God had to take matters into his own hands. Now here's the thing. It's never fun to humble ourselves, but when it's forced humility on us, it's especially not pleasant. I was thinking this last week as it's, uh, it's March Madness, as you may be aware, especially with Loyola out of nowhere, right? Going to the Sweet 16 at Chicago School. Who would have thought? Um, I was thinking back to, to one of the most humbling times of my life where I went from great pride to great humility literally in the span of two minutes. So I'm going to take you back. You're going to get a little snapshot into the senior year basketball career of Michael Best. Now, there's a reason there's no videos made of my high school basketball career, because it is not significant in any single way. But it's the last game of my year. I'm a senior in high school. It's a postseason tournament. It's the last game. I know this is the last organized basketball game I'll ever play. Right? You kind of get nostalgic about that. The game was back and forth. We were at a tournament, and we were down one with 20 seconds left. I still remember this. And I was standing off in the corner, kind of baseline, as I was a decent player, but I wasn't one of our best players. And my friend who was our best player, his name was Devin, drove the ball down the middle with about 10 seconds left, passed it to me in the corner. I took it, shot it, nothing but net. We're up by one with 10 seconds left in the game. And I walk back, they call a timeout, I walk back, oh, I'm good. Guys, did you all see that shot? Guys, you see it? I'm like, my last game in high school, I hit the game-winning shot, and I leave, and I'm like, I'm going to have a story to tell for the rest of my life. Well, here's the thing. The buzzer didn't go off, right? There was 10 seconds left, and I was paired up on defense to play against their best player who had scored and handled the ball for most of the second half. So I played defense against him, and he's back by the three-point line. He hasn't shot a three-pointer the whole game. I know that because I've guarded him the whole game. They're only down one. He doesn't need to shoot a long shot. So I'm guarding him. The, the clock's ticking down. The clock, I'm like, what is he doing? Finally, I get a little closer to him with about three seconds left. He, right in my, I put my hand up. As he shoots, my hand's right in his face. I'm like, oh, there's no way. I turn around right through the basket, we lose, right? I go from like this peak of, oh, I'm so great. Look at how I've ended to, no, you're not, right? Like, you know, no, no, no. Get, come, back, come back to earth, Michael, come back to earth, right? Humble yourself a little bit. You're not the greatest thing that God's ever given to the basketball court. See, if we don't choose to humble ourselves, often God will do it for us. The irony is this, that pride in our life now leads to humiliation later, while humility now leads to glory later. Or as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, as Jesus says, he says this, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See, this is the very essence of salvation is in humility. It's in saying, I need God. I can't do it my self. And that's where God wants each of us to get to at the point where we realize in our lives that we need him. The reality is we all need him. Just we don't always, always realize it. So often we live our lives as if we don't. So if you're walking today away from God, 
If you're living your life like you've got it all under control, can I ask you please just to humble yourself today and realize that you don't, that you need God, that you don't have your whole life figured out, to realize that, man, you don't measure up to perfection that God is and you're not even close to it because none of us are, that you would humble yourself. And if you're walking with God, to be conscious in your life to practice humility every single day. See, one of the, the ironic things is, as I think a danger in Samson's life is the more talent and the more prestige and the more honor that God puts on us, the more we need to practice humility in our lives. Right? The higher up we are, the more humility that each and every one of us need, the more humility that I need, that each of us need. And so practice humility each and every day. Verse 23 Sorry, verse 22 says this, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. There's a glimmer of hope here with this word that his hair began to grow, not only because we know the significance of his hair, but in chapter 13, verse 5, we're told Samson began to deliver the people of Israel. In chapter 13, verse 25, we're told the spirit of the Lord began to stir Samson. Now God is beginning something again. He's not quite done with Samson's life. Verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to rejoice And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. Verse 25. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And so you have here a large party in celebration of this fact that Samson is captured and it's specifically given the reason Samson captured for the Philistines is because their God is better than Samson's God. That's the reason that they're celebrating. You notice that it's a festival for their God Dagon. Our God is greater. In the audience, no doubt, of the Philistine lords would be the five lords who negotiated the price for him on which he ultimately caved to Delilah. Verse 26, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean on them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, Please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Now we read this phrase and and we start to, because we love happily ever endings, right? We love happily ever after. And we look at this like Samson gets it. He finally gets it at the end of his life. For the first time, he uses the word Yahweh when he says, Oh, Lord God, it's the relationship with God. Samson finally is realizing that he needs God in his life. But notice the content of his prayer, not just how he starts or that he's praying. Of the 18 words, this prayer in Hebrew is 18 words. Five of them are first-person pronoun. Me, I, my, me, at least every third word almost is. 
Why does he want vengeance on the Philistines? Is it because, God, they're defaming your name? They're embarrassing you? God, you, this is not who you are. God, give me strength. No, why does he want strength? Because of my two eyes. This is still ultimately all about Samson's revenge for what's happened to him. See, this stands out so much when we fast forward a few years later in the life of another conflict with the Philistines, a story that most of us know whether we've been to church a lot or not, and that's the story of David and Goliath, where David confronts the Philistines. And in 1 Samuel 17, we see this. And this is David's motivation in coming and confronting the Philistines. 1 Samuel 17, verse 45 to 47. David says, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you. In the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Notice the contrast between David's view of the Philistines and Samson's, because it stands out. David is all about God's name. Samson is all about his name to the very end. Verse 29. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, And he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. There's a tragic irony even in his prayer. It's not, God, save me. But it's, God, let me die here with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down, took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtel in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel for 20 years. There's a tragic irony that the man with the greatest potential, the greatest calling of all of the judges, the greatest act he actually does is die, is in his death. There's a tragic irony to that. And as we look at the, how Samson ends his life, even going down to the grave, what I would propose to you is not some turning back to God and following after God, but still a selfish, self-centered attitude. I'm reminded of our third point tonight, which is this. God will get the glory either because of us or in spite of us. God will get the glory either because of us or in spite of us. See, God will always get his glory. The Bible is clear from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end, and everywhere in between that God is always in pursuit of his glory, of his fame, because he is the greatest, he is above all other things. The prophet Isaiah summarized it well in two verses in Isaiah. Isaiah 42, 8 says this, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. See, it's amazing that God will always get the glory in our world. 
He is the greatest thing there is. He is the God above all the universe, and he will always get the ultimate glory. So when we look at our lives, the question isn't, is God going to get glory? The question is this, is God going to get glory in my life because of how I live or in spite of how I live? See, God used Samson. God got the glory in Samson's life. God accomplished his purposes in Samson's life. But most of the time, it was in spite of how Samson lived in a state of rebellion and sin and pushing away from God. The reality is God will get the glory. The options to us is whether we want to participate and make our lives about bringing him glory or about bringing ourselves glory, which ultimately leads to our own ruin. True satisfaction in life is not found in serving ourselves, but in serving God. True joy is not found in bringing ourselves glory, but in bringing God glory. And he doesn't call on you or to I to bring down huge temples, to do these astonishing acts of strength like Samson does. But for you and I each and every day, not to put on big displays of God's power, but just to have small acts of faithfulness each and every day where he's called us. We bring God's glory with a small act of love, small acts of kindness, small acts of generosity, small acts of faithfulness and compassion. My friends, Samson's life teaches us it's not Samson who is strong, it's God. God is so strong that God will always get the glory. And it's my prayer for us that God will get the glory in Chicago and in our world, not in spite of us, but that God gets more glory in our world and in our city and in our neighborhoods and in our families because our lives are submitted to him because that's the purpose of our lives. Not seeking our glory, but seeking God's glory. God, we thank you that you are great and holy and worthy God. God, that your glory is so far above and beyond our comprehension. God, we are humbled by the fact that you would use us, but you do. God, I pray that our lives would be motivated to bring you glory, to serve you alone. That that would be the driving force as we go tonight, as we wake tomorrow, each and every day. God, that wouldn't be to bring us fame, but it would be to bring your name glory. You're deserving of all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. We worship you tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.